Amen. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 41. Isaiah 41. I do plan to get to Isaiah 42 today as we continue in our sermon series that we've entitled, A Certain Hope in Uncertain Times. There are many folks in our culture today who are telling us what our problems are as a society, and those folks are, many of them are also telling us what solutions they think will solve those problems. And I must say that personally, I do not feel like I'm to the place that I can offer an opinion about those things, the problems or the solutions. I feel like I need more time personally to listen and to learn. But I want you to know today that in Isaiah chapter 41 and chapter 42, God is very clear on what our problem is and what his solution is for that problem. And so as a minister of the gospel of God called to say what the Bible says, I want to spend a few minutes with you today doing just that, showing you in God's word what God says our main problem is and what the solution is to that problem. In fact, those are the two points of the sermon today, the problem and the solution. So let's look at that together. First, our root problem. At its core, at the very center, our problem is idolatry. In Isaiah chapter 41, if you were with us last week, you may recall that God challenges the nations to consider who he is and the renewal and the strength that God gives to his people and the challenges to compare that to idols, to the gods of the nations. And we saw last week in Isaiah 41 and verse 7 that irony that for those who trust in idols, it's not the God that strengthens the worshipers, but it's the worshipers who have to strengthen their God. But for the people of God, it's not the people who strengthen their God. For us, it is our God who strengthens his people, who find their hope in him. God continues that challenge to consider those two things, the idols in our hearts and in our culture as opposed to the one true God. And he continues that challenge. If you look in Isaiah 41, look in verse 21. The Lord is speaking and he says there, set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proof, says the king of Jacob. Bring in your idols to tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or to declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing. We're going to see several things today that God calls us to behold, that God calls us to see. And the first thing he says here is, behold, idols are nothing. You see, it's not that there are any other gods other than the one true God. 
But what happens is there are things that we trust in and look to for salvation besides the one true God. And God condemns idols because his people are separated from him when we take those idols into our hearts. You see, an idol is not just something made of wood or of metal. An idol is any heart-level substitute for God. And I've been praying today that we would see that idolatry was not just an ancient problem, but it is a modern problem. You see, we're engaged in idolatry when we believe the lie that something more than God is required for us to be happy or contented or fulfilled. We believe a lie and engage in idolatry when we believe that our joy or our freedom or our peace or our contentment or our self-image or significance or security requires something more than the one true God. Read the news. Look into the mirror. And you will see that our root problem at its core is not economic it's not social, it's not intellectual, it's not structural, it's not educational, although there are branch problems in those places that stem from the core problem, from the root problem, which is our trusting in idols. We believe lies. Look at verse 29 of the text. God wants us to see that today. In chapter 41 and verse 29, God says, Behold, they, the idols, are a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty when. God wants us to see that our idols are the lies that we believe. When we believe the lie, that life only has meaning, or I only have worth if I have power or influence other, over other people, then I am making an idol of power and influence. When we believe the lie that life only has meaning, or I only have worth if I enjoy a certain kind of pleasure, or get to have a certain kind of experience, or I get to enjoy a certain quality of life, then we are making an idol of comfort. When we believe the lie that life only has meaning or I only have worth if I'm free from obligations or responsibilities of any kind, then I am making an idol of freedom. When we believe the lie that life only has meaning or I only have worth if my particular race or my culture is prominent or recognized as better than other races or cultures, then I am making an idol of my race or my culture. When we believe the lie that life only has meaning or I only have worth if my political party or my social cause is making progress or gaining in influence or power, then I am making an idol of my politics or my cause. You see, when the one true God alone is not enough for us, then we are struggling with the problem of idolatry. 
But God is so gracious to us. He does not just convict us of the problem, but he offers us a solution. And we see that as we come to Isaiah chapter 42. You see, we've seen before in chapter 41 and verse 24, God has said, behold. He's saying, I want you to see something. That's what behold means. He said, behold, idols are nothing. And in verse 29, he says, behold, they are a delusion. They're lies that you believe. But here in Isaiah 42, God says, behold, my servant. You see, there's only one solution to our problem of our idolatry, and it's found in Christ alone. Isaiah 42 is the first of four servant songs that we will study in this section of Isaiah that we're looking at. And these servant songs foretell the work of Jesus. He is the solution. He is the alternative that God gives to our idolatry. I want you to see that. As we come to Isaiah chapter 42, let me read verses 1 through 4 and then pray for us. Hear now God's word, God speaking in Isaiah 42 and verse 1 where he says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not shout or raise his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Pray with me as we come to God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, please open the eyes of our hearts and help us to see that our problem is idolatry. I pray that you would Open the eyes of our hearts and help us to see the specific lies that we believe this day. And most of all, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts and that you would help us to see your solution, your servant, your son, our Savior. And Father, as always, I ask that you'd be willing to do all this even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher, for it is in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. In Isaiah 42, God presents the solution to our problem, the alternative to idols. Do you see the contrast he is making with idols? Remember in verse 24, he said, Behold, they are nothing. But here in verse 1, he says of his servant, he is my delight. In verse 29, God has said, behold, the idols are a delusion. They're metal images. They are empty wind. And here in verse 1, he contrasts his servant by saying, he's the one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, my wind, my breath, same word as used above. Those that are not full of a spirit as opposed to the one on whom the spirit of God rests. He's contrasting his servant with idols. But notice he's also contrasting his servant with Cyrus the Persian. 
If you were with us last week, as we looked at Isaiah 41, you may remember that we said God is at least two steps ahead of us. Step one, God's people have been in idolatry. And so God is going to raise up the Babylonians to come and conquer them, to carry them off into captivity for 60 or 70 years. Step two, God said that at the conclusion of that time in captivity that he's going to raise up Cyrus, the Persian, to come and conquer the Babylonians. And it is Cyrus who will allow his people to go back to Jerusalem. God predicts this a century before Cyrus, whom he identifies by name in Isaiah 45, before any of these things happened. But if you'll recall, in Isaiah 41 and in verse 2, we're told that Cyrus tramples kings. In chapter 41 and verse 25, we're told he tramples over rulers. Do you see the the contrast between Cyrus and and this servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, who is so gentle? Do you see that description in verses 2 and 3, where God says he will not shout or raise his voice or make it heard in the street? In verse 3, he says, a bruised reed he will not break. A plant that's been crushed or one that's been bent and the stem has that little crease in it, he's not going to break it. That he's gentle with the most vulnerable. He is gentle with those who have been bruised. It says, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. That little orange ember that's a flame almost going out. He does not extinguish it. Those, are, those that are close to being extinguished, he is gentle with them. But do not mistake his gentleness for a lack of power, for a lack of effectiveness. Because the text assures us not once, not twice, but three times that he will be effective in bringing forth justice. Look at verse 1. There at the end of verse 1 it says, He will bring forth justice to the nations, to the world, to all ethnic groups. In verse 3, he will faithfully bring forth justice. Verse 4 He will not grow faint. By the way, he won't be bruised like the reed. He won't be discouraged. He won't be snuffed out like the flame until he has established justice in the earth. What a message for our day. This idea of justice is getting a lot of discussion. And as the Christian church, we should welcome this discussion. But as Christians, we would also have to say that our idea of justice must be shaped by what God says justice is and not by our ideas of justice. So what does God say about justice? This Hebrew word is mishpat, and it's used over 200 times in the Old Testament. Basically, it means to treat people fairly. To give people what they deserve, that's justice. Positively, it involves giving people rights, giving people protection, giving people the care that they need, that they should get what they are entitled to as being people made in the image of God. 
negatively giving people what they do means that we punish those who do wrong. That they receive punishment for wrongdoing. That's justice. But this particular justice means that people of all classes, colors, and creeds are receiving the same punishment for the same crime. That we don't give different penalties depending on who the person is. That's justice. And if you read those 200 times that Mishpat is, is mentioned in the Old Testament, there are four groups of people that often seem to be mentioned when God talks about justice. When God talks about justice, he talks about widows and orphans and immigrants and the poor. Basically, he speaks of those who had no power in their society. Those that are powerless, who cannot demand justice for themselves, God says it is the duty of his people to be sure that those who have no power in that society get what they deserve. That God's people are to identify with the powerless. And here it says that the servant of the Lord takes up their cause as should the church of his servant. I love the reference to this idea of justice, this mishpat in Exodus 26 and verse 30. It's used in reference there to God's plan for building the tabernacle, basically to a blueprint. The idea is that God has a plan. He has a blueprint for how humans should live in society how we should treat one another. And God created us and this world so he knows how society can work at its best. And through his servant, the Lord Jesus, God is accomplishing his plan to reorder society according to that justice as he defines it. And I have good news for you this morning. That good news is that God's kingdom will come, and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I can assure you, for those who are his, you are going to love it. Because we were made for living life just the way God designed it to be lived. A just world is human society as God designed it to be, without idols, without believing lies. When we see poverty, or oppression, or illiteracy, or pollution, or human misery in any of its forms, can we see it through the lenses of Isaiah 41 and 42? You see, the existence of those things means that we are arranging life according to idols, according to the lies that we believe. Think about the implications of this with me. That would mean that injustice, the lack of justice, is more than just a political problem. It is more than just a social problem. 
injustice, the lack of justice, the lack of things being the way God designed them to be is a spiritual problem. It is nothing less than the denial of God and his way of ordering society. It is serving idols, false gods, our self-made gods, and our self-made ways of ordering society. I want to dwell here just a, a few minutes longer and make some specific applications to the conversations that are going on in our culture right now. You see, there are some of us who long to preserve the status quo. We don't really like change. We prefer the established order of things, or maybe we, our, our greatest preference is we prefer some way things used to be and long to get back to those times of yesterday. If that's where your heart and your head are today, th then let me just challenge you to think about this. As Bible-believing people who believe in the sinfulness of humanity, it should not be hard for us to believe and confess that the institutions built by sinful people are sinful institutions tainted by the sin of those who built them. Be honest about that. Let's have the intellectual honesty to, con to connect our theology to our world. And let's be open to change. Let's try not to be so defensive. Let's listen to the conversation that is going on and let's weigh what's being said by the truth of God's word. And let's be open to change in ways consistent with God's design especially change with regard to those in our society who are powerless, who cannot enforce getting what they deserve to get. That's one group of us. I believe there is another group of us. There are many groups in our society, but for some of us, we desperately want change. We don't want to preserve the status quo. We are not for the established order. We certainly don't want to return to yesterday. We're not satisfied with how things are today. We want a better tomorrow. Let me just say a word if that's where your head and your heart is today. As we work for a better tomorrow, let's be careful not to tear down old structures built on old idols only to build new structures based on new idols, new lies that we believe. You see, idols do nothing but corrupt because they magnify our sin. So all we would get from building new structures built on new idols would be new injustices. Isn't that the lesson we should take from Isaiah 41 and 42? If you agreed with my critique of the established order, wouldn't that be the danger for us as well? Isn't that the lesson we should learn from history? I mean, you do realize, think about it with me, those who built the structures that exist today that we want to change 
those people were trying to build a better society. They were trying to build something better than what had gone on before. That was their intent, which is the same goal of those of us who want change now. But the mistake made by those in history was their blindness to their idols. They couldn't see how their idols were corrupting the new society they were building. So let's learn from history and be careful not to make the same mistake or else decades from now a new generation will rise. A generation who will see our idols so clearly and condemn our evil and the injustices that we've created not realizing that it was our intent to bring justice to the world. For all of us. Justice in this world has one source. The servant of the Lord. The Lord Jesus. The only hope for this world lies in Jesus. The delight of God. The quiet healer. The only one who can truly bring justice to this earth. But notice he does so not by bullying, but by suffering. He does so not by being served, but by serving. And he does so not by demanding his own way, but by yielding his way to the will of his heavenly Father. God is inviting us this day to embrace his servant, to embrace his solution to our problem. God's inviting us to uphold him, to delight in him, to look to him for justice as he defines it. To embrace his way of getting justice, not by shouting, not by crushing others, but by admitting our share of responsibility for the world as it is. By admitting that that we've been unjust by asking him to drive away our idols to show us the lies we believe, by giving him ultimate authority over our lives and giving him the ultimate allegiance of our hearts. Let me show you that invitation in Isaiah chapter 42. Let's pick up reading in verse 5. God is speaking. Thus, says God, the Lord who created the heavens and created and stretched them out, who spread out the earth, what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Verse 6, I am the Lord and I have called you, in reference to his servant, I've called my servant, I've called you in righteousness. That means the Lord's servant is going to do what is right. He's going to do it in the right way and he's going to do it at the right time. He's going to work according to God's purposes. Keep going. God says, I, I, God, will take you, my servant, by the hand and keep you. He's going to accomplish God's purposes and God's power. Then he says, I will give you as a covenant for the people. Now, I just have to say, as a graduate of Covenant Theological Seminary and a student of the covenant, there are so many sermons in the sentence I give you, the servant, as a covenant for the people. Let me briefly just comment in this way. Probably the, still the best definition of covenant is that one by O. Palmer Robertson in his book, Christ of the Covenants, 
where he explains that a covenant, as used in the Bible, is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. What does that mean? A bond is a promise. It's like a contract. That's what a covenant is. So what's the bond? What's the promise? It's God's promise not to leave us to perish in our sin and our misery, but to deliver us through a redeemer so that he can be our God and we can be his people. That's the bond. That's the promise. It's a bond, that promise, in blood. If you read about covenants in the scripture, it is all, they're always associated with the shedding of blood because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So what's the blood that is shed for this promise? Well, what does the text say? God says, I, God, will give you my servant as a covenant for the people. <laughs> wow. We see the work of Christ on the cross mentioned explicitly here, even more specifically in Isaiah 52 and 53 as we'll read another servant song when we get there detailing what this means but it's what the lord jesus said on the night that he was betrayed when he took the cup and he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for many for the remission of sin so partake of it drink of it all of you so it's a bond it's a promise in blood sovereignly administered that means god will accomplish it we've already seen that in the text Keep going. What does it say? He's saying, I'm making my servant. I give you as a covenant for the nations, a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. And then in Hebrew, there will be parallel things that go together that explain one another. So he is a light to the nations to open the eyes that are blind. You read those things together. Yes, the Lord Jesus physically healed people of blindness, but he's saying you're a light to the nations. That means for all of us, all ethnic groups, he opens our eyes to see his glory and to see the way that we can be delivered from sin and misery that comes from believing lies, that comes from our idolatry. He opens our eyes so that we can see that because he's a light to the nations, to all people, all ethnic groups. Then you have to read the next two things together as well, right? Verse 7, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And if you think that God's abolishing prisons here, we can have that debate another time. But that's not what this is saying. Because look at the next verse. It says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory, I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. He's associating being prisoners being in dungeons with idolatry. You see, we live in dungeons because we are incarcerated by our idols. We're imprisoned by the lies that we believe. And the Lord Jesus, the servant of the Lord, frees us from our idols by taking the punishment for our sin and our idolatry for our trusting in something other than the one true God. And Jesus gives us our freedom. He restores to us our lives, our truest selves as we were created to live. Look what God says in verse 9. It's another behold. There's something else he wants us to see. Verse 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. Do you hear what he's saying? God's saying, don't get cynical and think that this world of justice is never going to come. God's saying, 
don't give in to despair and think that justice is not going to come on the earth. God is saying, I foretold Cyrus by name over a century before he came. And that happened in real time and space history. So God has instant credibility when he says three times that he will bring justice to this world. So don't believe lies or run to false gods for a false justice. Verse 10. This will be the last verse that we look at. Verse 10. God says, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth. You see, God calls the whole world to sing a new song. God's invitation to the whole world is calls for great celebration and should lead us to sing his praises. A couple of implications of that. Number one, that's why we're against racism in all its forms. Because God is gathering a people of, to, for himself from the ends of the earth, from all ethnic groups. And so if we elevate one race or another, we are working contrary to what God is doing as he builds a, a people for himself. Second implication. This is why gathering for public worship is so important to us. Because God is gathering a people for himself. God invites them, but we in the church welcome them. And that public gathering, not individually in our homes, although I've been so grateful to worship that way that we've had the technology, but gathering publicly where people can see different kinds of people coming together, it brings God great glory. So let's open up publicly the doors of worship to all people, and I'm so glad we're doing so next week. But today, not next week, today, let's also individually open the doors of our hearts to all people of all races. Because God wants to include diverse people together worshiping him. It brings him glory when different people with different backgrounds come together that would not agree on much else, but they come together in agreement that God is our only hope to be delivered from our idolatry, the lies that we believe. So let's gather to praise him. We often say here at Redeemer Church that we don't agree on everything because we're a diverse group of people, but we agree on the most important things. And that's what brings us together. We agree that the one true God is our only hope for justice on the earth. And that brings us together to worship him and sing his praises. One last thought. Notice the contrast. Idols divide. You do understand that's why our world is so full of division and anger and hostility right now. In fact, I want to challenge you this week. As you see division and anger and hostility in the world around you, look for the idols that are driving those things. What are the lies people are believing that lead to division and anger and hostility? Because the scripture makes clear, our problem is not people different from us. Our problem is idols. 
So, so let's not fight one another. Let's fight our idols. And did you know one of the things God uses most to expose our idols is people different from us? They are much quicker to see the lies that we believe, and we're much quicker to see theirs. So let's listen to one another and fight our idols without fighting one another. Let's pray and ask God to help us to do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are such a good father. It is hard for me to believe that you write something thousands of years ago that is so relevant to where we find ourselves today. But thank you for your word. I pray that it would fall on fertile soil. That it would bear fruit in my life and in the lives of your people. I pray against the evil one who would seek to snatch up this seed. The one who deceives, the one who wants us to believe lies. I pray against him and pray that you would be at work in your people accomplishing your purposes for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.